Welcome to Positive Talk Radio. We're glad you're here. I'm Kevin McDonald, your host for this grand adventure, and I thank you for joining us. You see, our mission is to create a positive, personal connection to all things with courage and love. We invite terrific guests, interesting topics, and great conversation, all in a fun, entertaining way. And we always manage to learn something, too. So I hope you will stay right where you are for this episode of Positive Talk Radio. And welcome, everybody, to another episode of Positive Talk Radio. It is, let's see, what the hell day is it? Now it's Monday. It's Monday. It's a great day to be here, unless you, of course, have to go to work, and which means that you have a j- j- job, and so you're having to go work to work all the time. And uh, you may actually be in a career that may not be suiting you very well, or one that you would like to change or you'd like to enhance, and don't have any idea how. Well, for that reason, I brought you somebody who does have an idea how. His name is Mark Hirschberg, and he has written the book, The Career Toolkit. And uh, Mark, it's a pleasure having you on the podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on the show today. Oh, you're more than welcome. So what motivated you to write The Career Toolkit? There were a number of skills I had to learn in my own career to go from where I started being a software engineer, to where I wanted to be, being a chief technology officer, the person in charge of the department. These are skills like leadership, networking, negotiating, team building, communicating, all important skills that no one ever taught me. So when I learned it for myself, I realized these are skills others can need and use. I helped create MIT's famous Career Success Accelerator program, where I've been teaching for 20 years, as we get these skills into other people. And now I wanted to reach a larger audience and hence the book and app and all the speaking that I do to try and help others get the most out of their careers. You know, it just strikes me. We don't teach our kids how to create a budget in high school. And uh, so why would we do anything that's a lot more difficult, like the skills of negotiation or how to create your career in a manner that you would love to have it go? And so yeah, we don't do any of that. Do you have any idea? What's your theory as to why we don't set our kids and our, our friends and family up for success in that way? Our high school system and college has a different reason, but our high school system goes back about 150 years. As we turned into an industrialized nation, as we moved off the farms, we had to teach basic skills so people could function in the workplace, which back then was primarily factories, was the assembly line. You needed reading, writing, arithmetic. You didn't need to know how to network or negotiate. You need to know how to turn that screw eight hours a day, five, six days a week. That was it. You had to read the sign that said, danger, don't stick your hand in the machine. You had to have some basic skills, but you didn't need these higher order skills. And that's what high school was designed to do. So it's achieved that goal back then. But of course, today's world, we're not sending most people into the factories. We're sending most people into jobs where these other skills do matter, as well as budgeting. I think personal finance should absolutely be taught in middle school and high school, but we're still not doing it. 
So it's it's it, it truly is amazing to me that we're expecting our kids to grow up and suddenly magically. And by the way, just so <laughs> my son has had trouble budgeting, and so consequently, when I try and help him because I I've learned that over time, I'm his dad. He wants nothing to do with me and mm-hmm. telling telling him how to budget and how to how it works. But and if nobody else is doing it, then it doesn't get done. And so we have a lot of people living on the edge with a lot of stress because they are not, they don't understand how to budget and stuff like that. But that, I digress. That's high school. Let's go to college. Why is college not serving as well? College, unlike high school, is 900 years old. It goes back to oh, roughly the 12th right. century. Right. Which, you know, as everyone knows, right? But if you look back, it started about the 12th century and college is run by professors. Now, that's good and bad. I like professors. They're very smart people. But the professors are people generally with PhDs. They have deep knowledge in their area. They got to where they are because they are an expert in their field. And they know all about their field. So when you come along and say, I want to study marketing or accounting, they say, okay, well, I know what I'm talking about. So if you take these classes and those and some intermediate and advanced, if you take all this, my friends and I have decided you've achieved a certain level of knowledge and we'll give you a degree stating that. So when you get your bachelor's degree in marketing, they're not saying you're a good marketer or a good employee. They're just saying you have acquired this level of knowledge in marketing. That's it. That's all colleges were designed to do. And that was fine in the 1950s when you sat there like a cog in a machine and just said, my job is to come up with slogans all day. But in today's world where we're more dynamic, where a marketing person works with product people and engineers and accountants and it's a lot more unstructured. You have to do more than just regurgitate the marketing knowledge you had. And that's where these skills come in. But college, unfortunately, the university system evolves slowly and hasn't caught up with modern needs. I was in sales management for a long time in my adult life. <clears throat> and when I was uh, in my early 20s, yeah, early 20s, I went to a community college and took a sales class. I have never used anything that he said in that class, not even one time, because his was all theory, was sales and management or sales theory on how to work with a prospect and how to get them. No, that's true. And it all comes down to relationships. So, but that's not something that they teach. They teach, do this, which will be followed by this. And that's how it works. It doesn't work that way, not in the real world. So that's why you've taken it upon yourself to write this book to kind of bridge the two and make make them a little bit more easier for some of us to understand, right? That's right. This is not a book of theory, although I do base it on theory and research, but there are concrete, actionable things you can do today to become more effective at the skills we talk about in the book. Because unfortunately, as you note, We've heard about these skills, networking, for example. We've all heard about networking since we were kids. But if it's so important, how come they never taught it to us? We really should know these things if it's that important. So this is how you can execute on it and be effective today. And I still don't know, you know, I know the term on networking, but I still, I, I, have, I haven't read your book yet. I have to get it because I need to learn how to network. Um, and by the way, negotiation that we our kids are taught kind of a rudimentary form of negotiation between 
them and their parents and that kind of stuff. But it's not an effective way of, of taking it through the entire process. Exactly. Now you've hit upon when people say, oh, I'm, I'm terrible at negotiating. It's just not natural for me. It's totally natural because at age three, you were negotiating your bedtime. You were negotiating how many vegetables you have to eat until you get dessert. <laughs> we were all doing it before we knew the word. Right. So it is natural, but it is important. Let's consider the following. Imagine you're 25 years old and you have a job offer for $50,000. But instead of taking that job as is, you've learned to negotiate. Maybe you read my book or a different book and you negotiate and get 51,000, just a thousand dollars more. If you do nothing else in your career, you did five minutes of negotiating, got 51,000. If you do nothing else and you sit in that job for 40 years, you've just earned a thousand dollars more for 40 years. Five minutes of negotiation got you $40,000. That's incredible. Now, of course, you're not going to stay in that job for 40 years. You will have raises and promotions and other jobs, and you'll negotiate for more than $1,000. If you learn to negotiate, you can add tens of thousands, even hundreds of thousands of dollars to your lifetime earning. And that's just negotiation, negotiating your salary. Imagine when you do this in everything else you negotiate in life. So getting just a little bit better has this massive return on investment for the rest of your life. Seems to me that the, uh, the business has changed. When my dad was in, in business, it was 30 years and a watch was the, the thing. Everybody stayed in the place. And, and so you had to negotiate when you first went there, but then it was 3% a year, 5% a year, and that was kind of locked in. Nowadays, the kids are having to, move a lot more and not stay in the same place. And if they negotiate poorly, then they're leaving a lot of money on the table, aren't they? That's right. And those are for job negotiations. Obviously, we might negotiate with partners, with customers, with suppliers. We actually negotiate all the time with our peers, with our coworkers, for example, with our loved ones. We negotiate, oh, are we going to your parents for the holidays or my parents? And how do we do this? Those are very important negotiations. There might not be money on the table, but there's our relationships, which is arguably more important. So negotiation skills will benefit us in all sorts of areas. It's vital uh, because you, whether it be at work or at home, you, you have to be able to negotiate and, and to negotiate fairly too. Uh, it's not, it's not a one, one take all. It's, it's, it needs to be, well, you tell me, is negotiation, a, I take as much as I can, or does it have to be a give and take where you work and develop something that'll work for both sides? Yes. I know that was a yes, no question. The answer <laughs> is yes. There's a professor I teach with at MIT named Larry Susskind. He wrote a great book called Good for You, Great for Me. And he defines negotiating as we want to expand the pie but then get as big a piece as we can for myself. Because if, let's say we're talking about some deal where it's 80-20 for me, and you're only getting 20%. If I can make that pie three times as big, then even if I can take 90% for myself, you're only getting 10%, you're getting 10% of something three times as big, you're still better off in that deal. So when we negotiate, we go back and forth, we try to expand the pie, and this is what people think about as win-win. Oh, a bigger pie, more for you too. 
and I do want to expand the pie. I'd love to give more for you, but I want to get more for me too. So I also want to grab as big a piece as possible of that pie. So we want to do both, expand it and grab it. How do you teach kids? Because you know, when you're 25 and you've never been in a, a particular position, you've always thought you might want to, but you've never been able to get there yet. How do you how do you talk to kids and, and get rid of the glass ceiling? That get them to believe that they can do that through either negotiations or what they've learned or whatever, that they're a lot smarter than because if you've never done it before, it's hard to think that well, I'm not very good and, and somebody else might be better. How do you, how do you get the people that you work with to, to, uh, to get rid of that glass ceiling? Great question. Some of it is the analysis we did earlier saying, don't worry about being the best, just being a little bit better, gets you that thousand dollars more and look at how much that's really worth. So even small incremental improvement, you can start to see the value. If I offered you a thousand dollars and all you had to do was read a chapter of my book or read a different book and spend 10 minutes doing it, of course you'd do that. So a thousand dollars for an hour's worth of work, done. The second thing is we have to recognize these skills, not just negotiation, but leading, team building, communicating, all the skills in my book, they are learned differently than how we usually learn in school. In school, we learn by the professor or the teacher standing up front and saying, here's the information and passing it to us. Say, here you go, memorize this, write down this formula, write down these dates, and you memorize it and the test you put in the right spot. That's not how you learn leadership. That's not how you learn networking. These are learned more like how we learn sports. I can't teach you basketball by telling you here are the rules, best of luck to you. You have to actually do it. Now, we don't just throw you in a game. We say, let's run some drills. Let's scrimmage. Let's practice. Let's watch ourselves on tape or let's watch other teams on tape to learn from them. So we can do all of that with these skills. We want to practice and scrimmage and drill. And here's how to do that. Create a peer learning group. Now, if you're in a company, there's a way you can do this within your company and hopefully HR will do it. And I have a free download on my website to show you how. If you don't have a company doing it, create a local meetup group get some friends together, it doesn't matter how, get a couple people together. I recommend groups of about six to eight people and then engage with some content. So yes, you can use my book and you read a few pages of my book at the time. If you don't wanna use my book, use a different book, use an article, a video, use a radio program like this one, listen to an episode and say, wow, there's great content. However you get the content, the radio show or the book, you then discuss it because it's in that discussion that we start to understand because there is no formula for leadership. There's no three steps to always negotiate properly. It's in that discussion of, I have this challenge. What do you think? Oh, that's an interesting perspective. Someone said, well, here's what I tried when I was in this situation. Here's what worked. Here's what didn't. Oh, okay, great. I can learn from that. So that's how we practice. That's how we scrimmage by going through scenarios that we're in. Or if you want to be more specific, you can, for example, get a case study. Business schools sell case studies. The way we've taught it at MIT, for example, we do an actual negotiation simulation. You're one party, I'm another. We have our role sheets. I'm trying to achieve an objective. You're trying to achieve one. And then we sit down and see if we can negotiate an outcome. We actually scrimmage. We practice negotiating. What is the difference between a boss and a leader? 
great question. This is very subtle, and there's lots of debate over management versus leadership. So I'm going to start with my favorite expression, which comes from Rear Admiral Grace Hopper. No one ever managed men into battle. And ooh. if you think about that, what's that? I no, I just went ooh. That's so yeah. That is so true. That that's the essence of it. You go oh, it doesn't define it, but I kind of get the essence of leadership versus management. Now I also note there's a famous quote: "An army marches on its stomach." You can inspire people all you want, but if they don't have gas provisions to actually drive the vehicles to get them where they want to go, that's not going to help either. So you have to manage your logistics and manage the team and manage getting them there. Both of these skills are important. And even though I break them down to separate chapters in my book, I do so in a very wax on, wax off, let's get to the essence kind of way. But ultimately, good leaders manage and good managers lead. And we tend to do both together at once. Just certain roles tend to involve more leadership versus management or vice versa. A good leader will lead from, you can't lead from behind, can you? You can in certain scenarios. You certainly don't say, you don't want that general saying, okay, man, you, you go off into battle, you go dodge the bullets, and I'm going to sit back here, let me know how it goes. People like to use a famous example of the wolves where i believe the alpha wolf is actually in back of the pack making sure no one gets left behind so you can maybe not lead from i'm going to sit from the comfort of my home while you take on all the risk but we can lead in a supportive role we don't have to be the person out front in the spotlight we can have a more humble version of leadership often known as servant leadership where my job is to lead others in fact i talk about in the book I like to look at org charts upside down. We normally think of the pyramid. You've got the CEO up top and then the executive team and then goes further down to all the peons. But let's think about this for a second. If you got rid of all the management people, you just had the peons, well, they're going to be disorganized, maybe chaotic, but they'll still produce the widgets. They'll still do the work. It'll be maybe a little disorganized. On the other hand, if you got rid of all the people at the bottom, you just had a bunch of executives, what do we do? Meetings. Meetings and emails. <laughs> the customer would rather take a disorganized late project than just a bunch of meetings and emails. So it's the ones at the bottom of the org chart who actually do the work. And our job, nominally up top, but in my view at the bottom, our job is to support them so they do the actual work our customers want. That is, that is so true, and and uh, I'm I'm got living proof that 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 is how it works. In especially in something like um, I was a general manager of several restaurant properties, and what I learned early on was, and I actually had a meeting when I when I started at one of the companies, at one of the restaurants. I brought everybody together, and um, I said I introduced myself and said I, I want you to know, my job is to make you money and make you as much money as I can possibly make you. And one guy and one of the kids said, well, how are you going to do that? Give us all a raise? And I said, well, no, but what we're going to do is we're going to all work together to take care of the customer. We're going to cook him food that's the best he's ever had. We're going to give him the best service. We're going to keep the place clean. And um, people are going to find out that we're doing that and more people are going to come. 
When more people come, you make more money. The cooks make more money. The dishwashers make more money. The house makes more money. And that's how that's how we're going to get that done. And that solicited once it became clear that that was my intention. And I would not accept anything less than that. Then, then people figured out that, well, if I give great service, I'm going to make more money. And if I don't give great service, I'm going to have to give service somewhere else. Um, and so for me, that, that, that is, is, is that, was that an appropriate style? A hundred percent. That is a fantastic example. And as you know, it obviously as the manager, you can't say, well, I'm going to sit in the back room and not be on the floor or not be on the kitchen. You need to see what's happening, but you didn't need to necessarily go and meet every customer and say, hi, I'm the manager. How is this going? Some people like to do that, but you could have also never spoken to a customer as long as things are going and things are happy and said, let the employees be the ones who are the smiling face who get the credit. And that's how you lead. So you weren't in front in terms of visible to the customer. You were leading from behind in that sense, in that supportive role. But that is exactly a great example of how to be a servant leader. You're there to support your team. When, when I left that particular restaurant several years down the way, they gave me a, a plaque. And it had my uh, signature saying on it, which was on Friday and Saturday night. Those were the big nights. Those, those were the nights that, that everybody went out to eat. And those are the nights where we would make, quite literally, make or break our week. And I would have like 14 servers, three bartenders, 10 cooks, and all these folks. And I'd go around the building saying, we're going to be busy. Get ready. We're going to be busy. We've got lots of people coming, so you need to be ready. And are you ready? We're going to be busy. And uh, and it became kind of a, a, a weird little slogan kind of thing. But what it did is it let them know that we were going to all as one take care of the business as best we could. And where they needed help, I would make sure that they got the help they needed. When you're on a sports team, before you set foot on the court or the field or whatever game you're playing, Typically, you get together and you do that that mantra, that chant, that excitement, the, okay, we're kicking it up. That's exactly what you're doing with your team. We don't have that, okay, let's turn it on feeling. Now, you might not do that Monday through Friday every single day, but no. there are certain critical points. And for you, the big nights were Friday and Saturday, and that's where you want that energy. You want to say, guess what, everyone? Game time. And you want that mental state of let's bring it, let's do it and succeed. And as it turned out, I was also training my assistant managers and other folks who wanted to get into management, a, a great way to operate um, because it, it worked and it worked. And it's not because, you know, I, it's not because I'm extraordinarily gifted. It's just um, I felt like you, you were right. If you turn the pyramid upside down, it's the people who do the work are the ones who are responsible for the success of the company in many ways. And people who want to do better in their careers should look around at others. It might be your manager above you. It might be a peer to the side or even someone below you. If they have some good skill or technique or approach, learn it, use it, adopt it for yourself. That's the way we get better. You don't have to say it only comes from books or radio shows. Anything you can learn. One of my first managers, he was tremendous at the whiteboard. Uh, Most people just get up to the whiteboard and just start throwing things up there. And I noticed 
boy, his whiteboard diagrams are really good. I couldn't say why. I just had this feel like, wow, they're good. And so I sat there and I thought about, I watched what he was doing intentionally. And I realized there were specific things he was doing. For example, most people grab one pen and they just use it for the next 30, 40 minutes. He would intentionally change colors. For example, if you're showing old versus new, you might put them in different colors. You might put positives, you show the diagram, and then you mark it up with the positives or the negatives. Again, you might use different colors. He also, instead of just going right to the middle and then putting additional things to the side, he thought about what am I going to put on the board by the end? Let me start maybe on the left or on the bottom right because I'll add other things and where they are. And he was very intentional. By watching him, I picked up on this by being attuned to it, first recognizing he's doing something, then saying, let me understand what it is. I could have also asked him. That probably would work too. I was too shy back then. But I was noticing, and then I incorporated that into my own use of the whiteboard. Now, that's a tiny example. Whiteboard doesn't make or break your career, but we can all pick up skills and techniques like this. Oh, but I, but, but at the same time, when you are aware and in tune and you pick up skills like that, it's not, that's not an isolated incident. That, that happens all over your career as you, as you're moving forward and stuff. Now, can we talk about the thing that I just don't understand in this day and age, you know, there's Facebook and there's, and there's TikTok and there's uh, Instagram and there's this and there's that. Tell me about marketing. How can you teach somebody to, have, to learn about marketing? Great question. I've done a lot of marketing in my career, particularly B2B enterprise marketing. And really, I think having some theory is helpful just to understand the context, the process. But theory alone isn't good. You have to go out and do it. And marketing, it's first, it's a type of communication. It's understanding your customer, thinking about what your customer wants, putting yourself in her shoes, understanding her needs, and how is she going to decide on this, and then communicating the right messages at the right time to get her to convert. And so it's typically, there's something called a buyer's journey. Now, the buyer's journey ranges from you're at the supermarket counter, you're hungry, you see the candy bar you like, and you make that impulse buy, to my car is getting really old, it's time to repair it. Well, you're not going to impulse buy a car. You're going to start to think, okay, what cars are out there? And then you narrow it down to a consideration set. You're looking at maybe, we'll say, half a dozen cars, and you're going to research them you get down to a smaller set, you maybe do some test drives. And this is a process that takes a few months. So you go from, I'm thinking about cars, I'm going to research them to, okay, now I'm looking at some in more detail to who are my finalists to making a decision. And so that's the journey you go on and understanding that for your customer helps you understand how to engage with them in a way that adds value to the process and doesn't just annoy them. And that's a, a universal skill. I hate how grocery stores do that. They have already done the research and they know that if they put M&Ms by the checkout stand and they put a sale price, it might not even be a very good sales price, but the, and so then that's what they call an impulse buy. You're going yes. there, your kids see it, you see it. And then it's like, all right, here and, and stuff. And, and, uh, and that's, that's kind of, is that how, marketing works in total or is it different depending on the the field of, uh, that you're working in and stuff 
Well, it, it varies because again, an impulse buy, you're saying, let's just catch the person at the right point, catch them at the checkout line. You know, they're spending $40, $100 in groceries, whatever it is, I can sell them something for another dollar, dollar fifty. Oh, if I show 10 cents off, they're going to think it's a bargain, but I'm still making my margin. That's how you think about that. On the other hand, when you are, let's say, selling on the high end, a luxury car, let's say a Ferrari, you're not impulse buying a Ferrari. They're not saying, oh, maybe if we give you know a tiny discount. So it's like, okay, well, Ferrari's on sale, so I guess I'm going to buy it this week. It's it's a very the the fundamentals of how you think about making the decision is there, but the time frame and the factors that go into it have different weightings. Is that why? And I'll go back to the restaurant business again, because there was a there. My boss came to me one time and he said, "And let me t tell me if this is marketing." My boss came to me and he said, "We need to raise our per check average." And we can do that through a great cost item, which is a margarita. It was a Mexican restaurant. And he said, I want you to sell more margaritas. And I said, well, I already tell everybody to ask if they want a margarita and stuff like that at every table. And he said, well, apparently you're not getting the message through. So I created something called the margarita races. I divided the, the staff into three teams. And that included cooks and dishwashers and busboys and wait staff and bartenders and stuff and uh, an equal number of each on one. And then each day, because they had to write the sale or the uh, orders on the tickets, they would count the number of margaritas. We took a, a great big poster and put horses on it on a on a racetrack and and tracked it as as people were going and sales went up like 30 percent. Is that marketing? I would say that's more of a sales management technique. So what you've done is you've encouraged your sales teams, in this case, your, your servers or the teams you put them in to compete against each other. And some of that comes from maybe there's a bonus involved. The winning team would all get something extra. They did. That sense of competition. I know a lot of sales teams, even in enterprise sales, where you want your salespeople all saying together in the old days, they used to do the ring the bell when you closed a sale. They don't really do that anymore. But that energy of, you know, oh, how are you doing? How am I doing? Companies, one of my old companies, we had the sales leaderboard. And you would see literally how much each person sold on the board each day. And they could see who's doing the best. Or the famous uh, Glengarry Glen Ross, where they had the competition. And the winner got the Rolex. The next person got the steak knives. And someone got the pink slip. <laughs> but I would say marketing in this case, so marketing techniques in restaurants, common ones that they do might be you box certain items. Those are usually your highest margin items. You put them in the box to draw the eye, or you put some lower price item next to the higher price items. Like, oh, you know, that's expensive. Oh, but this one now looks like a bargain. Using different fonts has been shown to change people's perception. I think I might not get the study quite right. I think if you put wines in a slightly different font, they suddenly look pricier and more expensive because now it looks fancier. So there are different marking techniques that were commonly used in restaurants, but even something this, you could say is a combination of sales or marketing instead of would anyone like margaritas? Can I recommend our Cadillac gold margarita that everyone raves about? And so now you're not just saying, Hey, want to buy it? You're, you're selling it. You're giving them 
some motivation, some cause, some social proof in this case to buy it. So let me, let me, since this is, you know, like my show and, and I need to market my show, which I do a really piss poor job of, um, help me understand how to market a radio show. Great question. So there are I two. Hope you have a great answer because I need it. <laughs> I, I do have a great answer. So obviously what you want to do is get more listeners and you want to further engage your current listeners. Correct. Now, there are things you can do from our, our shows. Typically, it's people listening to us speak. They don't really interact or engage or have buy-in. So there are things we can do to get more buy-in. It could be doing a survey or a contest. Send in your information. I want to learn more about you. This way, you can get more information about your audience to better understand them and provide content that's valuable to them. And by filling out this survey, for example, they can then perhaps win a prize. They can feel more engaged. They can share feedback. If you create that kind of, look, I'm, I'm here to listen to you. I'm not just here to talk and have you listen to me. I want to hear from you. You're going to get a more engaged audience. You'll have a more connected audience. Now, here's one tool that I created recently for radio shows and podcasts and books. How many times do we read a book Say, okay, wow, great book, really good advice. And then you forget all three weeks later because we move on. Oh, you had a really good episode the other week and it was something about leading, but I can't remember the specifics. Okay, that's not good for anyone. It's nice to hear it, but it'd be better if we could remember that. So I created an app where you can put the content of a book or a podcast or radio show into this app users will download the app and what they'll get is each day a little pop-up notification with one of the highlights from the book or from the podcast or radio episode and so this way that person says oh great you know i was trying to remember what was it we learned about leadership last week here it is it stays top of mind they're going to retain it better this is a technique used called space repetition so the listener to your show now says, I'm getting more value out of the show because I'm going to remember this. Your radio program, now instead of something they hear, let's say once a week, every day they get a reminder about the show. Maybe they see a notification about a tip from a show they didn't hear and say, oh, that's a really good piece of advice. I want to hear that whole show. So this tool can help promote the content. The consumer gets better retention, better access. And we as the content creators get to stay top of mind with our audience. That is really cool. You're going to have to tell me a little bit more about the app, the person, you know, like, and stuff. What's the name of the app? I am finalizing the name. It's going to be under Cognosco Media, my website. It's not on there yet. C-O-G-N-O-S-C-O okay, Media. Okay, I'll wait. And in early March, we're going to come out with this. And I, I need to finalize the name in the next week or two. I think I think that is, that's brilliant, personally. Um, Thank you. So, so now for a content creator like me, would I uh, send you the clip to put on there? The way it works, we have some patent pending technology for delivery. We create a back end for content creators like yourself, where you would upload an audio clip or just some text and say, here's the content, here's a link back to the show. And then the people who download the app, the listeners of this program will download the app to their phone and they'll get that on their phones. That is, that is, that, that is brilliant. 
because that's that's where most people going forward, most people are going to listen to stuff through their phone. Exactly. I was shocked this didn't exist. When I thought about it, I said, surely someone has created this and I'll just license it so I can get my content, my book on there. Now, what exists are flashcard apps. Those have been around for a while. We're not a flashcard app because no one's going to want to open a flashcard app for your radio show. That's just not how we think about listening to radio. But they would like to say, yeah, I just want just a reminder pops up on my phone with the great takeaway from that show. I can look at it as a notification. I can swipe it away. Took me two seconds and I'm done. Or I can click into it and then I can go on to the show if I want to go get more information from that show, go deeper on it. That's, that's a, how'd you think of that? Was it just trying to get your book out? I was chatting with my neighbor. My neighbor is a marketer. And we were talking one day about my book. And she said, well, you should build an app. I said, okay, great. What should the app do? I said, I don't know. Build an app. <laughs> okay, great. Thank you. Next, why don't you tell me sell lots of books? You know, put that on the list. And I sat there and I thought about it. Now, I have, I'm a CTO, a chief technology officer. So I have a background in tech and creating patents and new technology. I've been teaching for over 20 years. So I have a background in education and I've worked in media. And I started to think, what can I do with all these different things I know how to do? And space repetition, again, that idea of looking back at the content, that's where you read the chapter for class. And then before the test, you looked at it again to help remember it. That's spaced repetition. Okay, how can we do that? How can we get you to remember this, but in a way that doesn't require effort? And so the key thing, what we patented about the app is that it does that push notification. You only need to open the app once a month, just so we know you're active and we're not annoying you, but you don't have to open it every day because no one's going to want to have to remember, let me open this app. Oh, I got to open the app again. Oh, I got to remember to open the app. You just set the time you want that notification and it gets pushed to you. That's pretty cool. That's uh, well, I wish you a lot of luck with that. Cause that, that could be a big deal. Thank you. We have a lot of interest from authors and podcasters for our beta launch in a few weeks, and we'll get you on it as well. So we can market your show and your listeners can continue to get the great content from your show right on their phones. Oh, I would, I would love that. I'm very interested in that. By the way, we're talking with Mark. He is the really coolest guy that I've ever met because he's going to give me an app that's going to grow my business. <laughs> Not give me, but I, I don't know what it costs, but that, we'll figure that part out. Uh, and he's the author of the book, The uh, Career Toolkit. It is highly worth your time to go do that because, like you said, all this stuff we don't learn anywhere else. You learn it through the school of hard knocks or your neighbor happens to be a marketer and uh, in stuff like that. That's kind of how it works, I guess. But, you know, we gave the example earlier about how learning to be a little better at negotiating can add those tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars to your lifetime earning. This is actually true for all of these skills, for leading, for communicating, for networking. Now, it's not that someone's going to say, Oh, I was going to offer you 50,000, but you're a good networker, so I'll give you 51. That's not how it works. But by being a good networker, you get exposed to more job opportunities. You get exposed to more customers or partners or suppliers. Being a better communicator, you stand out within your team and you get put on the better projects. You get faster promotions. So all of these skills, if you just get that little bit better about them, 
it's going to give you those massive returns. It just won't be literally, here's $1,000 more. So it's worth investing in all of these skills. Now, there was a skill that, and to be honest with you, I, don't, I haven't read the book, and, but I wanted to ask you about, what about communication skills? Is that something that, it, I, it seems to me like that would be a, a really important piece. Isn't that why, what is it, uh, um, the Toastmasters and, and things like that, then they're trying to teach people how to be able to stand up in front of a room and that kind of stuff, which some people would rather pee their pants and stand up in front of a room talking. Yes. Now, communication is a super broad topic, and Toastmasters is a fantastic organization that will help you with your public speaking. Now, I first want to note that we can talk about all different types of communication. Public speaking is one of them, but it might be writing more effective emails. It might be conveying technical ideas to non-technical people. If you work in finance, trying to explain how options and derivatives work to someone who doesn't understand the markets, that's a type of communication that's very different than explaining options to someone else who's in finance. So there's all different ways we can improve our communication. I do recommend Toastmasters because public speaking is critical. Now, even if you say, I never want to get up on stage, I don't like doing that. Okay, fine. But you will use your public speaking skills other times. When you're sitting in the meeting and you say, hey, you know, everyone, I have a really good idea and you spend the next 90 seconds pitching your idea, that's public speaking. You might not be standing at a podium, but you're doing it. In an interview, when someone says, well, tell me about this job you were just at, that's a type of public speaking. You're sitting, it's one-on-one, -on -one, but you can use public speaking techniques in that moment. So public speaking really is a lot broader than just standing up on stage. I will tell you, I've interviewed um, as, a, as an employer, as well as doing what I do now, thousands of people. And if you cannot communicate effectively, if I ask you, what's your passion in life? What do you want to do with yourself? What, what, do, why do you want this job? And you can't effectively say why you want this job. I'm probably not going to hire you um, because you, those are things that you need to think about. Um, and if you're not, or you're, and so you really do need to have a presence, I think. And it doesn't have to be dynamic. It just needs, it, you don't have to be Robin Williams, but you do have to be, I, th I think you need to be competent in, in being Absolutely. able to speak. We often think of public speaking as tweaking imperfections. We think of, um, well, where, um, where um, I, I need to get rid of uh, the, those um, pauses. And sure, you want to get rid of those. But even if I've gotten rid of them and you ask me, Mark, tell me about your book. I said, well, it's a really good book. And we talk about these things and, oh, it's useful. And I'm going to go through a lot of stuff and you should really read it. I'm kind of all over the place. I might not be saying um and uh, but I'm just rambling. I'm not going to the point where if I were to say, these are skills employers have identified as the most important for 21st century success. And after teaching them for 20 years, I've distilled down the essence and the key takeaways to make you more effective. That's why you should buy the book. It's a lot more concise. Even if I had a few ums and uhs in there, well, um, you know, this book really comes from 20 years of teaching. And it's, um, it's from the fact that all these companies told us what the skills were and uh, we developed it 
And this is going to help you be more effective. I threw in a few ums and uhs, but I got my point across. Well, that's kind of like the 30 second pitch, right? It's, it's short, concise. You don't bore anybody, but you get your point across about why they should buy it. That's the classic elevator pitch. Yes. And now we often, we talk about an elevator pitch. You should have more than one. I have first an elevator pitch for my book, but I have one for the general readers. I have a different version for corporate executives or HR because there I'm telling them, okay, you might be 50 years old, very experienced. You're thinking, I don't need this, but does your team need it? So I'm going to pitch you, get this for your team. I have a pitch for Mark Hirschberg, the CTO, and what I do as a CTO. I have a pitch for my app and why certain people should have my app. So I have multiple pitches based on either what I am pitching or to whom I am pitching it. And you are able to converse it because you have studied it and you have committed it to, if not absolute memory, you have an idea where you're going when you're talking about it. Just like public speaking, we tell you when you do a speech, don't memorize your speech word for word. You should know what you're saying, you should know where you're going, but if you do it word for word, then it's going to sound very robotic because you know exactly what you're going to say next. Instead, you just want it to come natural. You know the direction you're going with. So same thing with our elevator pitch. I know what I'm trying to convey, but I don't have it necessarily word for word. I've done it so many times, it's just natural. And it works. And the book works. And the app will work. And so, uh, uh, Mark, I, it's, it's a pleasure having you here on the show. Mark Hirschberg has is, is been our guest, and uh, somebody wants to find out uh, your website. What's it called? You can go to my book website, thecareertoolkitbook.com, and there you can learn more about the book, more about me. You can get in touch with me or follow me on social media. You can download the app for the book. It's just like the one we talked about for your show, but focused on my book. That's free on the Apple and Android stores and linked from the website. There's also a resources page where I list other great books. I link to free online resources, and I have a number of free downloads, including how to create that peer learning program we talked about. That's on the resources page and all of this at thecareertoolkitbook.com. And then for the app we mentioned for your radio show, for other books and other podcasts and other content, that will come out under Cognosco Media, C-O-G-N-O-S-C-O Media.com. So where did Cognosco Media come from? It is Latin for I learn. See, now that's a whole lot deeper than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> that's very good, young man. That's very good. Thank you. I have appreciated this hour. It's been awesome fun. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Is there anything that you'd like to tell our audience that are listening now and in the future? Anything at all? Invest in these skills. Getting just a little bit better is going to provide massive returns on your success and happiness. So invest in it. Do it with others because that's the best way to learn. And I wish you luck. Again, Marsh, Mark Hirschberg has been our guest. And go to his website, which again is thecareertoolkitbook.com thank you very much you know it's a fascinating discussion businesses is and and leadership and management and all that kind of stuff it's very interesting and and uh i hope that you know and before we go just real quick 
There are a lot more people that are out there and they're trying to work with executives and people at the top to change their management style into a much more human friendly management style, because that will trickle down through the organization and affect a lot more people. Have you, have you noticed that that, that trend is coming? I have. We've been talking a lot more about the people impact, and especially today, as we record this during the Great Resignation, people are quitting. There's a famous line, you don't quit jobs, you quit managers. It's not that people aren't earning enough, although we do see people wanting more money. It's that my company doesn't support me. It's not a healthy environment. My manager's not very good to me. I want better. And so companies are starting to respond saying, we need to do better. And it's why, by the way, in the management chapters of my book, there's two chapters. One is the process side of management, but the other is the people side of management, because that's the really hard and complex part. And just as an aside, before we go, and I just got to I just got to say this, because my son, my son is a diesel mechanic and he's worked for five or six American companies in the last 10 years. Each one is demanded certain things. A lot of them demand a 50 hour work week. Um, you know, their, their benefits aren't that good. They have the, a lot of medical taken out. They have to buy their own tools, all of that. And it's part of the culture of being a diesel mechanic. But now he um, recently changed jobs. And this company is run by Canadians. It's out of Canada. And it's, and it's in Seattle. But it's, it's, it's uh, and their company c- culture is completely different than it is down here. Um, they, they, don't, they don't try and kill their people. They nurture their people. Um, when it's time to go home, it's time to go home. Uh, when it's time to go to work, you go to work and everybody works hard and then they go home. And he is having a much better employee experience, which will drive him to a much better degree. Does culture, does uh, um, company culture mean as much as I think it does? Absolutely. And even more so today, again, during the great resignation, this is something we have to get better at during the interview process. Companies need to convey the culture. People need to ask about the culture and we need to find out, is it a cultural fit? It's fine to say, I want to be an accountant. Oh, you have an accounting job. Great. That aligns. Good. On paper, this works. But if the culture is not a fit, whether that's the expected number of hours, whether it's are you supposed to respond to emails at nine at night? Or is it okay to say, I'll deal with it tomorrow morning? We don't want that mismatch. That's not good for the employee. You go into a company you don't like. It's not good for the company because you spent all this time hiring someone who now isn't happy. And so there are a number of questions we can ask during the interview process. I actually have as one of the detail, as one of the downloads, the free downloads on the resources page at the careertoolkitbook.com. One of those downloads are culture questions you should ask during the interview process. And now I'll teach you, here's how to ask, because it can be really hard to say, hey, um, so how, how many hours do you work here? Or do you expect me to respond to emails at 10 at night? It can be hard to ask those. So I outline in a blog post how to do this, but here's the easy thing to say. I heard this career expert, Mark Hirschberg, and he said, these are the questions you and I should discuss before I accept the job. So I'd just like to go through them with you. Blame me. Don't say, oh, I need to say, Mark Hirschberg, the career expert, said we should go through this. So we make sure we're aligned. 
So we're both happy. We don't have missed expectations. That's good for both of us. So put the blame on me for the reason you ask. I think that's awesome. And by the way, in, in my humble opinion, if you have an employer that expects you to answer emails at nine o'clock at night, um, you need to find a different employer because that affects your family life, that your family life needs to be honored. There needs to be balance. And with rare exceptions, I understand that there's catastrophes that come up every now and again that, that need to be dealt with, but they can be done in a, in a normal civic manner most of the time, I think. Your, your, your opinion? I think as long as you two both agree, there are plenty of people, young folks or people without families who say, I don't mind doing that. I actually don't mind answering emails at nine o'clock if I happen to be home and doing it. I tend to like the jobs I have. There are certain industries. If you want to go into law, that's not a 40-hour work week. You go into big law, you understand you're starting out working 80-hour weeks. You're going to make a lot of money. You're not going to have a life. That's a trade-off. Everyone's up front of that. And if you are both okay, both sides are okay, it's not for me to say don't do that. Likewise, if you say, look, I want that 40-hour job. I want these boundaries. Make sure both sides understand it. So it's really what both sides agree to. As long as there's agreement and understanding, be happy. That's great advice. Absolutely great advice. And uh, thank you for that. And, and I could, I get it continue for another hour, but I can't. So Mark, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me on the show today. And if you wait right there, I'll be right back. Thanks for enjoying this episode all the way to the end. Please give us a like and subscribe to this channel. This has been a production of KMmedia.pro. Please visit our website, oddly enough, named KMmedia.pro for more details about us and our mission, which is to provide great positive programming designed to inspire us all. I'm Kevin McDonald, and I'm proud of these shows, and I truly hope that you'll like them and share them with friends and family. So on behalf of our entire team, remember, be kind to each other because each other